Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we chat with Jim Neuheiser about his new book, Money, Debt, and Finances, Critical Questions and Answers. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Dr. Jim Neuheiser is director of the Christian Counseling Program and associate professor of practical theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, as well as IBCD's executive director. He is a fellow of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and a board member of the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. Hey there, Jim. Welcome back to the podcast. Really happy to be back with you. You always do a great job. Oh, thank you. Well, I am super excited to introduce the IBCD listeners to your brand new book, Money, Debt, and Finances, Critical Questions and Answers. But before we get started in our conversation, would you spend a few minutes sharing about why you wanted to write a book on these topics? Sure. There are a lot of reasons. One would be that this is an area where I think we see the timeless wisdom of Scripture, even though the technology changes and you know, governments change and all kinds of factors that we think we live in this modern world where finances are so complex, the timeless wisdom of Scripture is still relevant and people get in trouble when they go against it and they can experience blessing as they follow the Word of God. Uh, it's also an example of the sufficiency of Scripture in the sense that the Bible does speak comprehensively to all of life, and money's a big deal to most people. It's a necessary thing in life, and we need wisdom, and the Bible is full of wisdom about this. And then I've had a burden just because I see that there are a lot of pragmatic books and talk shows that are kind of from a Christian point of view but it tends to be extreme on the pragmatic side and not as deep in terms of exegetically, theologically grounded. And so part of my goal in writing the book was not just to give practical wisdom, but to show how it's grounded in our relationship with God and the fear of God and love for him. And that you know, seeing how we fit into his plan for all of this, but again, the great aim being to reflect his glory, to honor him, to be like Christ. And so I think having some some depth, I guess, to go along with the practical aspects of finance has been important to me. I would love for you to take a few minutes to give the listener kind of an inside peek as to the layout of the book. There are so many topics that you address in this volume, and so I thought the way that you organized it was really helpful. Would you go ahead and just share with us an overview of the, the five different parts or categories that are in the book so that we have an idea of what kind of critical questions you're actually addressing? Sure. I think it may help some people who are familiar with my book on critical questions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, where there were approximately 40 questions uh, with you know, relatively short chapters, that this is in exactly the same format, just dealing with a different topic. And so it can be used either for someone to read straight through to learn about what the Bible says about money, but it also can be used topically where you've got 41 different questions and you want to know, well, what does the Bible say about how much I should give? Well, that's chapter 17. So it can function 
you know, either as a read straight through or as kind of a reference to look up particular issues. And the way I divided it, first of all, was kind of general principles of how do we understand how the Bible teaches about finances, wealth, uh, understanding even in a fallen world how that's different than it would have been in an unfallen world, and then kind of logical categories in the next sections of how do you get money and what does the Bible say about getting money in both legitimate and illegitimate ways to acquire money? How do you wisely spend money? Some of that would be biblical principles for budgeting, very practical help there, but also in terms of using our resources to bless others and to promote God's work. There's a section on debt in terms of is debt something that's absolutely forbidden or is it merely something that's unwise? How can we handle that part of our lives, how can we get out of debt, which uh, there's a popular guy on the radio that talks a lot about getting out of debt, so I'm in favor of that. And then the last section is preparing for your future, especially financially in terms of thinking of saving for retirement. Uh, is it legitimate to save or should you just give everything to the Lord and trust God? Are there biblical reasons to save? And then also even dealing practically with uh, wisdom in investing. So that's a, a broad overview of kind of general principles, getting money, spending money, debt, and preparing for the future financially. Jim, early in the book, you write, quote, our goal is not to be debt-free or to be wealthy. Our goal is to glorify God in all things, including our finances. Now, when I read that, I thought, gosh, that kind of statement may rub against what listeners have been taught about personal money management. So can you explain what you meant by that statement? You know, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether alive or dead, present or absent, we want to be pleasing to him. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians that whatever we do should be done to the glory of God. And so money is an area where we want to grow to be more Christ-like. We want to be more holy. We want to understand from the Word of God how we can please and serve him. Now, that can include getting out of debt. That can include providing wealth for your family. But there are bigger considerations in life than being debt-free or having a lot of savings or having a nice lifestyle. And actually, with reference to money, there are actually big tensions we have to deal with, which also is addressed in the book, where how much do I save? How much do I spend in terms of lifestyle? How much do I give away? And there's not a mathematical formula in Scripture, but how do we as Christians honor the Lord by enjoying how he's blessed us? And yet to be generous towards others, there are real tensions as we seek to please God, but even then to approach those tensions from the standpoint of honoring God as we address those questions, rather than simply being pragmatic or following the world, which has a lot of false views. And even people who are professing Christians have, I think, adopted many worldly approaches to finances. I also appreciated, Jim, in the book, you touched briefly on one of the myths that I think we're all pretty familiar with. It's the phrase, money is the root of all evil. And it's a popular misquote of 1 Timothy 6.10, which reads, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs or griefs or sorrows that could be translated. So would you help us establish a biblical perspective on money and its purpose in God's created world? Sure. And actually, your reference to that verse makes me think of another reason I wanted to do the book is because so much counseling 
of our counseling over the years has involved helping people with financial troubles. And I can confirm the wisdom of the verse in First Timothy, which is that I've seen virtually every one of the Ten Commandments broken out of the love of money. I've seen people you know, blow up their marriages, fall into sexual sin. You know, every sin you can imagine has happened because of the love of money. But money itself is like fire or sex or other things that we live with in this life where uh, it can be used well in the appropriate place and it can be used horribly if it's inappropriate, which is why the wisdom of saying we, we should not love money, we should love God. And then we use money wisely to fulfill our responsibilities to God. Paul earlier in First Timothy says that we have a responsibility to provide for our families. The one who doesn't take care of his own family is worse than an infidel. So a believer wants to get money so that he can pay for housing and food and provide for his children. And, and so money can be a very good thing. It's quite frankly, I've had the last 30 something years of my life, I've been involved in ministry and I actually dedicate the book to people who have generously given to the Lord's work and church for the seminary I now work for, for IBCD, where I've had the privilege of doing ministry along with many other people, because people have been very successful and have earned a ton of money and have then generously used that money to advance the Lord's work. So money has tremendous potential for good, but it, it's when we love God more than we love money, then we use our money in order to love and serve and honor God. Well, Jim, since this book is jam-packed with questions and answers, and we can really only scratch the surface in our conversation about the various topics you address in it, I thought it might be fun to select a handful of questions proposed in the book and then ask you to briefly address them here on the podcast. So I'm going to pick a few questions that stood out to me while I was reading it and then just ask for you to give a real broad, you know, just touch on the topic. And then, of course, will direct listeners if you want to learn more about it than to get a copy of the book and see how Jim connects biblical wisdom to these particular issues. So the first question I want to ask you, Jim, is does God want all his people to be rich? So I can give a brief surprising answer would be absolutely yes, but it's rich spiritually, not necessarily materially. <laughs> to be rich in good works, to store up treasure in heaven, every single believer should be rich. Not only that, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no lack. Every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no hunger, sadness, sorrow, sickness. And so the, the anticipation of the abundant world that God has made for humanity to enjoy, uh, whatever that's going to look like exactly in the new heavens, the new earth, that is a certainty for believers that we will have plenty for eternity. And so in that sense, yes, definitely. Now, when it comes to riches in this life, there are principles of wisdom, like so much in Proverbs, where there are general principles of wisdom when followed generally result in blessing, and yet there are generalities that are not universally experienced. There's a, there are maxims, as some have called them. And so the hand of the diligent makes rich. And do you see a man skilled in his work? He'll stand before kings. And so Proverbs says in general that if you work really hard and you acquire skill that makes your time more valuable, then you will have lots of money. And then with that lots of money, you can take care of your family. You can help the poor. You can give generously to ministry. 
And that's going to often happen for believers who honor God with their vocation. Part of even the Reformation, Luther, was to see not just priests and nuns, you know, pastors and missionaries as being servants of God, but that the milkmaid or anybody in their vocation is, is serving God. They want to do the best they can. And generally speaking, if, you, if you're wise, other principles, you avoid debt, you save, you're careful, you're not extravagant. Generally speaking, that will bring earthly prosperity. But then you have Job, who lost everything due to no fault of his own. You have in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, the hall of faith, and you have some people who in this life enjoyed victory and success and prosperity of other people who were imprisoned and tortured and died, and the world was not worthy of the latter, not the former. And so because we live in a fallen world, some people who are faithful to God may experience famine, poverty, lack. You've got all that going back to Genesis sometimes. And so in this life, you could be very faithful to God and still have great financial need due to disability or economic depression or calamity. And until the new heavens and the new earth come, we will not completely avoid that. Jim, you just used a term that I had not heard before. You said stand before kings. And that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you here on the show. So let me go ahead and ask it now. The question you propose in the book is in reference to keys to success in your vocation, what does it mean to acquire stand before kings skills? Yeah, so that comes from Proverbs 22, 29, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not serve obscure men. And it's just, it's a principle of wisdom. In that day, I mean, we even have in the Old Testament, people were really skilled to make the tabernacle or work on the temple. And people with greater skill get paid more money. In our context, you have minimum wage, whether it's 7 or $15 an hour for people who can stock shelves or collect money to register, kind of minimum wage for low-skill labor. And you have some people who can bill out $500 an hour for legal services or performing surgeries. They have valuable skills. And so there's an expression in the book where we talk about you want to work hard and you want to work smart. If you're making $10 an hour and you work 60 hours a week, you still probably would have a very difficult time supporting a family. You could barely survive on your own. If you acquire skills that make you valuable in the marketplace where now you're worth $50 an hour because you're a CPA or you're a nurse or you have exceptional skills that make people compete for your labor, then you're going to be more successful. So for Christians to be wise, figure out how can I learn what the abilities God has given me to make myself so valuable that people will be bidding for my services with higher amounts of money. And that could be if you have an aptitude for computers to get some kind of certification. It could be getting a degree. It could be doing an apprenticeship and becoming a plumber or an electrician where you you make a good living. And I've, I've seen this happen where I have a fellow I knew who, when I first knew him, he had come become a Christian coming out of a life of drugs. Initially, he was a painter's helper, making minimum wage. And then he became a painter. And then he became a painting contractor with other people working for him. And so he went from whatever, making the equivalent of $10 an hour to making the $50 an hour as he learned and acquired those skills. So rather than being passive and rather than just waiting for somebody to hand you more money for doing the same work, find a way to gain skills that will make you more valuable so you can be paid more money. 
You also referenced this other question earlier in our conversation. Is it sinful to incur debt or borrow money? So the proverb says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And I think, so in general, the proverb is saying debt is an unwise thing. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites were warned that if they were faithless, they would be a debtor nation. If they were faithful to God, other people would be owing them money. And so the Bible definitely says that debt tends to be a bad thing. Nobody wants to be a slave. And so, you know, when you owe a lot of money and you think of people with large credit card debt, student debt, you know, debt on possessions they've purchased, it can be enslaving because you're making $4,000 a month and you're spending half that money just paying interest on the, the debt you owe instead of using that money to buy goods and services that directly benefit you. So it's hard to get dig out of debt. And so debt is generally, I'd say at very best, it's very, very dangerous but I can't say from the Bible you're forbidden from taking on debt. That's the, there's a difference between a principle of wisdom and an absolute command. The Bible, as I understand Proverbs, it doesn't say you're not allowed to lend money and you're not allowed or you're not allowed to borrow money. It's just saying if you do, this is an extremely risky venture. And one thing in the section on debt, we talk about like most people can't buy a house without incurring debt. And I know Christine, you're probably glad that people incur debt on houses in light of your husband's profession. And and yet you could argue that, well, I'm paying on a mortgage payment uh, something close to or maybe even less than I would be paying rent. I've got to pay something. And so borrowing to buy a house could be a good financial decision if the amount of debt you incur is something that you can faithfully manage to repay month after month, borrowing money, if you borrow more house than you can afford, bigger loan than you can afford, there are all kinds of bad ways to get into debt where you can lose your collateral, you can lose your credit rating, all these things taken away from you. So generally speaking, you want to avoid debt. And if you're going to be involved with debt and you consider that the, the benefit the debt allows is worth it, like owning a house as opposed to renting for the rest of your life because you can't come up with $300,000 to pay cash for a house. You want to do it in a way where you can safely repay the debt, not put yourself in a position where you're in, in danger. Another thing we talk about is like people borrow for a car. Sometimes you find yourself in a position where you're upside down and you owe more money than you can sell the car for. I think it's wise to avoid borrowing money on depreciating items, and it's extremely wise, in my opinion, to avoid owing more for something that it could be worth, which goes against a lot of the conventional wisdom, like put the minimum down payment on a house. But a lot of people, when housing markets drop, find themselves upside down. Another area is education, where some people get tens or even $100,000 in debt for an education and then when they get done, they're not making enough money to actually pay down the debt plus meet living expenses. So that was probably not a wise route to go. On the other hand, if you're going to medical school and you're going to be making $200,000 a year when you get out of medical school, then borrowing some money that you have likelihood of being able to pay back in order to go to medical school may, it's a risky decision, but it may be a wise decision. And it's certainly a decision one is free to make if one chooses to go that route. Speaking of incurring debt, or borrowing money, you bring up the topic of co-signing loans. So why is it unwise to borrow or co-sign among family and close friends? 
Yeah, there's a lot on that. There, there's actually a funny verse in Proverbs where it says how don't give a pledge for a debt lest they come and take your bed out from underneath you. I think that's a very vivid, vivid picture. Uh, I think it's in Proverbs 22, verses 26 and 27, where I think it's fascinating. Proverbs written 3,000 years ago with these very explicit warnings of making yourself, I mean, if, if getting into debt yourself is foolish, making yourself liable for the debt of another person is incredibly dangerous and foolish. Now, again, I don't think it's something where you exercise church discipline on somebody if they choose to borrow money or to co-sign a loan or lend money to family members, but you can say that it's very, very likely they will deeply regret that decision. And there are several reasons for this. I guess I can summarize really quickly. One would be that if the bank will not lend the money to your friend or relative without you co-signing, it means the bank has run the numbers and they think it's very possible, if not likely, that your relative or friend will not be able to pay back this loan, which means you will be liable. That could be really bad for you. Someday they come after you you know, for the $10,000 still owed on the car or to start making house payments on the house that these other people are living in because they're not making the payment, uh, you're promising that if they fail, either calamity happens to them or they're irresponsible, it's on you. And again, if, if the bank thought they had the credit worthiness, the reliability of character and the financial means, they wouldn't be asking for a cosigner. The other aspect, both in co-signing for family members and lending to family members, is that it is destructive to relationships. Uh, sometimes there's this pressure put on, well, you know, your brother wants to buy a house and you have a good job, and so he doesn't have such a great job, so you can co-sign him for him and then he can have a house, and you're not a good brother if you don't co-sign because he can't get a house unless you co-sign. There, there can be a lot of family pressure, and that's actually, I talk in the book about what do you say into those circumstances, and I think the relationship damage done on the front end by saying, I'm sorry, I can't in good conscience do this, and my understanding of biblical principles, it would be the wrong thing for me to do, as much damage as that might cause on the front end, the damage that will be done if you don't get paid back, which in a very large percentage of family loans, they're is default or delayed payment. That makes the relationship damage much worse. And ironically, I mean, it, it goes in two directions. One sense would be, okay, if I'm the one who lent my relative money and they're not paying me back, I'm tempted to be resentful of them. I feel like I'm taking advantage of. They're taking a Disney World vacation, but they're not paying me back. I, I can be tempted to be upset. But going back to the proverb that talks about uh, lending, it says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And my observation has actually been that the people who owe you money resent you because they don't want to feel like a slave. They feel guilty about not paying you back. They're tempted to think bad things about you, that you're judging them, or you think you're better than they are because they're not paying you back. And so it actually, that's the whole thing, people avoid debt collectors. They avoid people they owe money to when they're not paying it back. Uh, they feel shame. They may be tempted to turn that shame into anger against you. So co-signing and lending among family members is financially foolish because you're very likely to lose a bunch of money you probably can't afford to lose. And then it's relationship dangerous in that if things don't go well, no matter how kind you try to be, it's probably going to blow up the relationship. 
again, having said that, if you make that decision to do that, you're, I'm, I can't say that it's wicked or I think maybe unwise, but if you choose to do that and just be prepared to lose all the money you've lent or co-signed for, and if you can live with that and not be embittered and be willing to let go of it and maybe you can afford it, that's your freedom, but don't be surprised when it doesn't go as well as you hoped. Definitely some good things to think about on that topic. So thank you for, uh, I know you you definitely summarized quickly on it. And again, I just want to remind the listener that Jim is just giving bite-sized pieces of what he has covered in this very extensive book. So I'm, I'm thankful um, for you just providing summaries on those questions. We've got a few more I want to be sure that we have time to address because we've talked already about, you know, money, debt, and I want to go and kind of shift into the saving for the future, retirement. And you speak a lot into that particular aspect of our finances. So can you tell us what does the Bible teach us about planning for the future and making smart financial investments, just in general, personal savings wisdom? Again, there's a lot there. So in each section, I actually have the first question or chapter is, addressing misconceptions people have about that topic. And so in terms of misconceptions about the future, some people say, well, look, I'm just going to trust God and not save for retirement, or I'm just going to plan on working until I die. But the Bible actually commends, like the ant in Proverbs 6 is storing up food in the summer, knowing that winter is coming, and that the wise see trouble coming in the Proverbs. So being prepared for the future in the Bible is considered to be a very wise and good thing. My verse I use repeatedly in the book is Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to advantage, and the one who is hasty comes to poverty. And so planning for the future is that one day I may not be able to work even if I want to. I may be physically or mentally impaired. And you know, even now I'm in my early 60s, and there are things physically I can't do that I could do several years ago. And maybe someday it'll be mentally as well. Maybe it is, and I'm not aware of it. And so it's very likely many or most of us will not be able to make a good living at some point, and we will need resources so we will not be a burden on our families, which is a really good motive to save so that uh, your kids aren't going to have to you know, have you sleep in the basement or something because you can't afford a place to live. So there's wisdom to knowing uh, future expenses are coming. And those could be your children's college education. It could be you need a new car in the future. Rather than borrowing money, you're saving for it. Obviously, retirement is the big one. And so there's wisdom to preparing for that by saving money rather than hoping it'll drop out of the sky. And what usually happens when people haven't saved money, they go into debt or they suffer massive lifestyle reduction or some of each. Now, when it comes to the investment part, there's a lot to get into that the book touches upon. And there are other books that are more extensive. But as a, a general principle would be, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And that we need to be very careful in terms of recognizing. And that, well, another simple principle would be never invest in something you don't understand really well. And again, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. There are a lot of scams out there. There are a lot of people who sell investments, who hide the risks and promise tremendous returns, hide the costs, lock your money in when you may need it in the future. So it's an area where you need to be really cautious. Generally speaking, more return is going to be at the expense of more risk. So investing in stocks is 
generally more risky in terms of they could go way down really fast than investing in cash or money market or whatever. But you know, there's risk in everything. There could be inflation that wipes out the value of your cash. There could be turmoil of other kinds, which I guess gets back to an important biblical principle is we should not put our, as first Timothy 6 speaks of the rich, we should not put our hope in riches of the world as there is no absolute security in this life, but it certainly can be wise to plan for the future and to be prepared for what may happen, knowing even then, like Proverbs says, as we in, the, in his mind, a man makes his plan, but the Lord directs his steps. And so we, we plan as best we can, but then we leave it in the Lord's hands. We may never have before considered how money serves to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you do address it in this book. So again, I know we're short on time, but would you make that connection for us? I think there are many ways. This I think in the Bible, the, the central theme of scripture is Christ and redemption. And I guess even redemption comes from a financial picture of redeeming someone out of slavery. Christ, by his death, has redeemed us out of slavery. At the end of the book, the verse I point to is 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. So the Bible portrays us as people who were deeply in debt with a debt we could never repay, the debt of our sin. And yet it says that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to redeem us out of the slavery of our debt, he became one of us. He took on our debt. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He, And then he paid our debt by dying on the cross in our place for our sin, that not only would we have the debt removed, but Second Corinthians 8, 9 doesn't just say that he made us debt-free. It says that he said that he, through his poverty, we are made rich. And again, that's rich spiritually, not materially in this life, where not only has our guilt been laid upon him, but his perfect righteousness. We are rich in the righteousness of Christ, he who perfectly kept the law, perfectly obedient to the Father. All of that is counted to us as we believe the gospel. And so in that sense, the gospel makes us rich in the most important way. And then the context in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is as Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to give generously to help the great need of the churches in Judea, he's saying the motivation for us giving to those in need and giving to the Lord's work is gratitude and imitation of what Christ has done for us. And so we get to reflect the gospel as we have received great riches from God freely, just through faith, by asking, and even that faith was a gift from God, then when we give to those in need, when we care for others in this way, we are imitating Christ. We are reflecting the gospel, giving to people who can never pay us back as we have freely received from God. That's so great. As you were talking, I was thinking about an illustration that I think I used with my daughter, Brianna, when she was smaller about just that picture of the great exchange, right? And having, you know, there's a million dollars in debt, but Christ takes that million dollars in debt. Not only does he take it, but then he gives us his million dollars. And it was just kind of a simple way of trying to communicate 
that type of big idea to a five-year-old. But yeah, just that concept of the great exchange. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that um, and making that connection for us. I think it is important. Well, Jim, at the very back of the book, you actually have resources that people can use to go a little bit more deep into their financial planning and management. Would you tell us a little bit about those resources in the back of the book and how someone might use them? Yeah. In the book, we describe how to make a budget, how to make a budget by which you might try to get out of debt, how to keep track of your savings and plan for the future. And so we've created some appendices in the back with sample budgets under different circumstances and a sample kind of balance sheets that include kind of creating savings for the different things, you know, saving for the next car and for retirement, things like that. Probably the most valuable aspect of that will be we also reference uh, a link to a place online where you can fill in your own budget on a spreadsheet we've created online or create your own balance sheet. So rather than just looking at our samples, we have blank ones that you can fill in your own income and expenses and debt. So that's that's what's there. But it really goes along with the chapters, which refer back to the sample budgets and balance sheets in terms of we try to describe in detail how to make a budget. And then if you want to go to the back or go to the online spreadsheet, you can fill that in and that would help you to get a picture of where your finances can go or where they should be. I want to let you know that Jim recently appeared on a Facebook Live video that was broadcast on the IBCD Facebook page, and it was an Ask the Counselor Finance edition, where he actually took audience questions and based on what he has in the book has addressed them as best as he could in the time we had available. So if you didn't get a chance to watch that live broadcast, I want to encourage you to go ahead and check that out. If you go to facebook.com forward slash IBCD org, O-R-G, I'll put the link in the show notes as well. You can check out Jim's appearance on Ask the Counselor because there's a lot more questions there too. And it was a really awesome conversation. So be sure to check that out. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for taking time today. Uh, You know, we've got, you've been, now this is your third appearance on the podcast. So you know that we close out every episode of the Hope and Help podcast with you addressing the audience. So there may be someone listening to this episode who is experiencing a season of financial hardship, what would you say to offer gospel hope and help to this person today? I think a lot of people (laughs) at some time in life go through this, and there are times in our economy where it's widespread. And I think it goes back to what Paul said, even to the rich in 1 Timothy, we need to put our hope in God and not in riches. And I think you we think of the Lord's Prayer where we're told to pray, give us today our daily bread. I think many of us, we've lived in such a prosperous time and place that we don't think about food for tomorrow. We're thinking about retirement in 30 years or the luxuries we don't have that we still want. And so being in situations in which you're concerned about even the necessities of life, making the rent, I think it's it's a good thing spiritually to drive us to pray the Lord's Prayer the way the disciples originally had to pray it because they didn't always know where this month's bread was going to come from. 
And so it, it is good that it brings you to a dependence upon God. I think that there's also wisdom in Scripture, which some of that is in the book. I actually have a booklet by New Growth Press called Financial Crisis, What to Do When the Bottom Drops Out, specializing in this uh, very question in terms of you know, examining yourself. If I had hard attitudes towards money, which have perhaps contributed to my problems that I need to repent before God and perhaps even my family members in terms of how it's created these problems? Have I, uh, you know, had been guilty of, of loving money or storing up treasure in heaven that God may be disciplining me? But also to follow the principles of wisdom in scripture that there are wise things you can do to try to, to dig out in terms of, like we talked earlier, acquiring skills that are more valuable. Uh, a verse that I've sometimes have used with people who need work is Ecclesiastes 11.6, where it says, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, whether both of them alike will do good. And the idea being, you know, for the farmer, you sow lots of seed, not all of it's going to sprout. It means if you need work, you don't just toss out a resume and hope to get an answer someday or you know, send, fill out an online application and wait for the phone to ring, you diligently pursue every possible way of earning more money. If you have to sell things, you have to you know, work to you know, sell things you owe money on to pay them off. You're, you're ready to take drastic action to diligently pursue the help that God would give you. I would also mention that this is why it's so important to be part of a biblical church. One reason would be when you're in a financial mess, you need wise counsel. And it would be great to have wise elders and deacons you could go to so you're in a mess that they can help you walk through the challenges you face in a way that would honor the Lord and would be biblically wise when sometimes you're so confused you don't know what to do. Another aspect would be is membership has its privileges, as the old commercial said. And in the Old Testament, it was said that in Israel, when they were faithful, there would be no hungry among them. And this was a feature of the early church is when people had genuine need within the body, the body came alongside to meet that need of widows and others. Uh, it was a big aspect of the life of the early church. And so it's very sad anytime people have crisis for them to be spiritually homeless. And there are great benefits to being part of a body where people can care for your soul and the struggles and sadness of financial trials, but also where people who will stand with you, perhaps people whom you've helped in the past, and now they will be there for you. And then ultimately, you're, you're turning to God. First, you know, Matthew 6 talks about this, trusting God for we eat and drink as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting that the things we need will be given to us by God. Thank you so much, Jim, for sharing those words of encouragement. I want to let the listener know, Jim referenced a mini book that he has written, and he also has a 31-day devotional on this topic. It's much, much smaller than his new book, but I will link to both of those resources in the show notes. So if you're interested in learning about those two particular resources, scroll down in the show notes, click the link, and you'll have access to that, as well as links to Jim's new book. I will link 
link to the Ask the Counselor. We have got a lot of resources on this topic to give to you today. At, um, so definitely be sure to check them out. And Jim, if there's someone listening who wants to get connected with your ministry, you know, this is a one aspect of a very far-reaching ministry the Lord has given to you over the last four four decades. Is that is it four days? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so you, this is not the only topic you've written on, and chances our listeners know that you have a lot of other books available. But if they are just getting introduced to you for the first time, where can they go to connect with you online? A lot of our resources are on ibcd.org, including some pretty financial, pretty extensive. We had a whole seminar dealing with finances, a lot of which is kind of rolled into the book book is more detailed, but there there are a lot of talks about financial issues on the IBCD website, mostly by myself, some by others. Uh, there's a jimneuheiser.com where a lot of my resources and blogs are there. Uh, and I would mention about the three books I've written. Each kind of has its own purpose. The new one, which everyone should go out and buy <laughs> for the sake of PNR, is pretty comprehensive mm-hmm. and is a, is a reference and is pretty thorough. And it, it's pulling everything together, and I'm really excited about it. It's the thing I've yearned for. I, one thing I didn't mention in the beginning is that I, my first several years, I was involved in finance in my tent making, including while I was in Saudi Arabia. So I've kind of seen both the spiritual side and the practical side of this personally. But then the financial crisis is a mini book that's like one fifteenth the length, like you're just a few chapters out of the other, dealing with that particular issue very narrowly. And I think the devotional would also be really good. We actually took a couple in our church through it recently where they had really hit the wall financially and were a great deal of trouble. And it's a lot of that is, you know, simple day kind of daily bread plus type, you know, for 31 days. How does the Bible speak to my heart about these issues to give me some wisdom, but also to help me deal with worry and some of the distress that comes along with financial challenges? So each has its place. And thanks for uh, putting them up for people to refer to. Thank you for explaining that. That was definitely much better than I could have done off the top of my head. So thank you. Well, Jim, I really enjoyed today's conversation. I am, I did want to congratulate you on this book launch. I'm thankful that the Lord has given you this book to, to steward and to get out. And hopefully it is a blessing to the listeners and also to wherever the corners of the world that it goes to as people are seeking to learn how they can glorify God, even in their financial life. And so I'm, I'm thankful that you took the time to write it and look forward to seeing how the Lord uses it. Thank you very much. Thanks for doing a great job of asking good questions and being so enthusiastic. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.